Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You know, one of the things I always find so amusing is that we're spending so much time and resources trying to make machines more intelligent and self-aware. But it almost seems like a bad idea when you consider all of the software bugs about being human, right? <laughs> you have to worry about our happiness and fulfillment and uh, you know, job satisfaction. I mean, what a nightmare if we need psychologists for computers as well. <laughs> oh, heaven help us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fortunately, we're not talking about computer sanity here. We're talking about what makes and drives high-performance human beings. I'm sitting having a cup of tea uh, with my very good friend, Dr. Adam Fraser. Uh, Adam, it's good to see you. Very good to see you. It's been far too long. It has been far too long. I can see what you've been doing, though, because I'm holding in my hands a a copy of your brand new book, uh, Strive, Embracing the Gift of Struggle. Congratulations, Adam. I just finished reading it. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a real labor of love, that book, but um, I actually read it the other night and I don't know whether you read your own books, but um, I'm very critical about my work, but I read it and went, I'm really happy with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the big takeaways for me is that we've sort of got it wrong with happiness Yeah, and that what really drives happiness for us as human beings is, is not actually reaching the end of the rainbow. Very much. And, and really how this book came about is that we were doing some research and we came across a finding that kind of messed with our head. And so rather than the traditional research of we have a hypothesis and we're going to prove it, this was much more about we found this crazy thing and we're trying to work out what it actually means. Right. And, and what is it? Well, I mean, as we were talking about before, we've been looking at transformation in organizations, but from a psychological perspective, how does an indiv- how does a species that loves comfort and staying in the one spot, how do they transform and evolve? So we were looking at, at, at goal achievement and evolution in general. And what most people said is that when I achieve the goal or I achieve the evolution or the target, that's when I'm happiest. But what we found is that often after they achieve the goal they go through this flat period of almost sadness and when we got them to do diary studies so rather than retrospectively reflecting on the process when we got them to do in the moment reflection uh, what we found is that the strive that period of transformation was much more fulfilling than the achievement of the goal and what was even weirder still is it's The most fulfilling part of the strive is when we go through struggle and discomfort, but come out the other side. So basically, we love the trenches more than we like the podium. And this must be a a very complex thing for people whose the nature of their profession or job is actual constant struggle. Like, and I think you give the example of the book of professional athletes. Yes. Like when you suddenly go from that high level performance and constant transformation to sitting around doing nothing, it, it can almost be fatal. Oh, very much. And part of the book, what we looked at is we interviewed gold medalists who had come home from the Olympics. And across the board, they went into this terrible state of sadness, uh, loss, lack of meaning and purpose. and But also the delusional of, if I win a gold medal, my life's going to be awesome from here on in. And, and what 
what we found with them is they missed the daily evolution of pushing myself, the, the, the rigor of uh, having a routine. And so, but even people who retire or people who are made redundant or in the context of the evolution of work, um, people believe that when I achieve this kind of outcome, then everything's gonna be great. But actually what we miss is the striving, it's the overcoming the struggle. This comes at a really important time because, you know, we're at a, a moment of workplace transformation mm. where almost everything we know about work is changing because of you know, the rise of AI and automation and digital disruption. What impact does all this have on the mental health of organizations and, and people that work there? Yeah, well, I mean, and this is an area you know so much more about, but my fear is a couple of things. You know, when we see huge scale automation, what happens to a group who are told they're no longer relevant to society? Because right. the, the mental health impact of that is extraordinary, as well as the societal. This is, this is like professional athletes retiring, right? Yeah, very much. And um, when we don't have struggle and challenge and evolution, and, and when we're not forced to evolve, we, 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 we become dysfunctional. I mean, one of the parts of the book talks about the fact that rich kids and welfare kids have the same problems. And that is low, low struggle in terms of expectation of evolution. And one of the groups I interviewed that was the most fascinating, like you would have interviewed some incredible people, but uh, I interviewed trust lawyers. So people that looked after <laughs> billion dollar family trusts. And they said two things. One of them said the, the only difference between rich kids and welfare kids is how expensive the drugs are they take. <laughs> and, um, and the second one, he said, getting everything you want is devastating for people. Like it, it crushes them. And he said, the smart families that, the really rich families that have functional children have made them struggle and work for it and evolve and contribute. And, and this is the piece is we actually love, we love the strive more than we love the achievement. And you saw this not just at an organizational scale um, and an individual scale, but on the scale of countries as well when you spent some time in Kuwait. Yeah, which is fascinating. So one, just I absolutely love this country so much. And, and how it came about is uh, Sheikha Intasar, a member of the royal family, saw me present at the Dalai Lama conference and, and got me to uh, come over and work with her organization, Al Nawair, which was all about how do we make Kuwait happier and a more prosperous society. And obviously a, a country's happiness is very complex, but one of the things that we found was that, you know, it is an incredibly wealthy society that only has a, a million to 1.5 Kuwaiti nationals in it. So, you know, the amount they can give to people is really high. And one of the problems was a lot of people were in such states of comfort that they weren't striving, they weren't challenging, they weren't evolving. Um, and so really the thing we learned from Kuwait was the fact that when people are in this almost euphoric state of the, they have so much you know, money, they have everything you could possibly think paradise looks like, but what they miss is the struggle, the, the strive, the evolution. And when that strive was put back in, they were far more, uh, they were far better version of themselves. So, you know, this becomes interesting when you think about the challenges in, in, in a world where work is changing constantly. Yeah. Because uh, people are frightened about the idea that 
uh, they may have to change jobs, yeah. uh, that they may have to have more contingent work, that this, whatever they studied at university won't be relevant in five years, that, that actually maybe the best jobs in the future will be jobs that don't even exist today. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying is that actually that process of constant transformation may actually lead us to being more fulfilled. Definitely. Like, I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but that's what our research shows. And there's really strong arguments to propose that. And, and this is something I see in organizations. People are terrified of transformation. So if you're a leader and you're trying to prepare people to be ready for that kind of uh, transformation, what can you do to, to support people? Well, there's many things. Uh, from an environmental perspective, uh, what we showed is, actually here's, sorry, you've asked a very big question. I'm trying to formalize it in my head. One of the biggest ones was that leaders validating and emotionally supporting people about their fears. So, and this comes back to the happiness piece is, is one of the things we've seen in our research is, is because we've been so obsessed with happiness, we have this view of we should feel happy all the time. And, and you know, Emotion in society has been boiled down to positivity is good and good for you. Negativity is bad and bad for you. Hmm. So we're not supposed to feel bad. So what we showed in our research is a lot of leaders, when their people were freaking out about transformation and worrying, leaders would just go change your attitude, shouldn't feel like that, or just not even have the conversation. And one of the biggest ones was the acceptance of that striving and struggle sucks. Like it it's uncomfortable, it feels bad. And the validation of, particularly for a leader to validate to their team, I understand your fear. I understand that you're worried. That is a normal reaction. But then the the, the safety and the support of, but you know, we've got each other's backs on this and we're gonna support each other. So what, what we found, you know, to answer your very big question, one of the key things was that emotional connection and support and validation and acceptance. The study that's always talked about is the classic Google study where they found psychological safety was critical for teams. But it sort of raises the question, you know, what exactly is psychological safety? Because what you're talking about is not the absence of psychological challenges. Yes. Right. The opposite. It's actually the opposite, isn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, we... And, and psychological safety is the hot thing right now. But I suppose what we found in our research was rather than safety, safety was a, a lack of judgment, a, a support. I kind of, I'm going to have you back. You might try something and you might screw it up, but we, we, we've got you back here. And, and that's, that's the environment we found people evolved um, best in. This is closely linked to the concept of failure and how we talk about yes. failure. Um, what, 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 what did your research show on that about how successful organizations, I guess, normalize failure? So one organization that I think handled failure really, really well was a, a Toyota plant. Um, so there used to be a Toyota plant in Altona outside of Melbourne. And I spent two weeks at this plant um, and the, the leader of the plant was a, a, a tremendous individual. And they would have weekly meetings about all their mistakes. But you think about the average organization <laughs> talking about mistakes. It's a free-for-all and it's like the, the common thing is, well, I will blame another group and, and we'll defend our ground and, and we, we won't take responsibility for this. But they were just so casual about it. And there was zero judgment. It was just, we tried this, it didn't work, or we made a mistake. Um, and, you know, 
of course they're Toyota, they have a checklist and a system around that, but it's about, do we know what happened? Can we fix it? What else needs to be done? But the second piece was just that lack of, so high levels of, of non-judgment, but also no behavior around, we will blame or not take accountability for that. Yeah. And how, how does that, how, do, how does that impact the way people process that information? I mean, do, do they then see this as more like tactical course correction rather than, um, uh, you know, something that's gone wrong with their life or their career or their... Yeah, routine? I think that's a beautiful way to put it. I think you nailed it. And and I interviewed some of the, the guys about this and the biggest thing was just, and they'd worked in previous organizations and they said, we just save so much time because uh. we're talking about the issue and it's we're not talking about defending ourselves or blaming it's just like well, what has to happen next this is the mm-hmm. most interesting part i think about organizations that are going through a process of, of rapid evolution is yep. we often focus on the technological aspects of it you know like do you have the best software the, you know the latest collaboration tools uh, but we forget the the social side of, of, of dynamics, yeah. which is ingrained in us, the, the politics, the, um, you know, taking credit or assigning blame, uh, or how we feel personally about, about the process. Yeah, and I think, you know, because we are so clever and we, are, we love complexity, that we forget those simple things. Even, even uh, I don't know whether this is off track, but I was doing a presentation for Urson Young the other day, and they brought, so I was presenting to a group of directors and partners and they brought in some more junior people. They called it a fishbowl activity. They literally put them in the middle in, in a, like in a round circle of chairs and everyone sat around them and they asked them questions about what do you want from your leaders? What would make you better? And these were bright, like young, you know, 25 to 30, bright, sharp people. And the stuff that came out was treat me with respect actually talk to me, not just bring me in on a project, work me to death, and then (laughs) off you go. Um, So treat me with respect, be generous with communication and transparent with it. The biggest one was coach me, show me when I finish a project, tell me what I need to improve, what I did well, how am I getting better? And the fourth one was just talk to me about where I'm going, my career, give me pointers. Do you think there's been a tendency to take the sort of snowplow or lawnmower parenting model of eliminating obstacles from childhood and and also now apply to the workplace oh definitely for sure and and a thing i've seen is that you know we've taken strengths or we've taken meaning and purpose and we've just perverted it right meaning like i i will i hear in meetings some people say well that, that doesn't relate to my meaning and purpose. I don't want to work on that project or that doesn't relate to my strengths so I shouldn't have to do that task. I filled out my strengths finder graph and, and, <laughs> and, and this work you've given me is not in my core set of competencies. Yeah, and I know you joke, but um, that's Are what you I see. Yeah, totally. Huh? Yeah, and um, it, it is something I have, uh, have seen a lot where people expect to, I want to enjoy the process of work constantly. It needs to relate to my values and it needs to be in my strengths. I remember visiting this uh, this city in India, uh, and it was the famous pink city of Jaipur. And there was basically, you know, when you were born, exactly where and when you were born determined your career. So if if it was outside of your astrological chart, you shouldn't even try doing it. And it's sort of it's sort of weird that some of these things we talk about are almost like a form of corporate astrology. Yeah. Right? That that we 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 have a very limited 
non-growth-based view about what we're capable of. Very much. And, and if it feels bad, people will retreat from it. And, and I think the happiness movement has, has really limited the business's ability to evolve because the people go, that doesn't feel good. I don't want to do that. The, the, the other risk I see, of course, is that you know, with, with greater levels of automation, um, machines have the capability to take on more and more of the work we do. Mm-hmm. potentially atomizing what what remains yeah and and we may in, be in a situation where seemingly it's like a work utopia where all of the all of our tasks are automated but as a result we lose a sense of of, of real purpose of real complexity and 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 difficulty yeah and, and challenge. struggle and yeah. challenge I, I i share the same fear and um I do not have any answers to that. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the question is, how do you safely create struggle where there may not naturally be? Beyond just giving people stretch goals. Yeah, I think part of it is... I think we also have to look at... I mean, and that's what we're hoping this research does, is, is we fundamentally have to look at the process differently where we fall in love with the work and when we fall in love with the goal that creates dysfunction and something that just popped in my head like i don't know if you're a fan of um comedians in cars getting coffee Jerry oh, Seinfeld yeah, of course. when he interviews obama and he says to obama what percentage of the world leaders are totally nuts and obama says a frighteningly high percentage and, and, and he says to Jerry, you've probably had the most successful TV show in the world. You have astounding amount of money. How have you st- stayed so unaffected and grounded? And Jerry in that moment said, because I fell in love with the work and the work was hard and it was challenging and it was joyous. And he said, I have fallen in love with the process of comedy and the science and the complexity of it. And he said, people ask me, do you still work? He's like, every day I work. I, I, I still you know, gig all the time. I write jokes every day. And, and I think that's the mentality of that we have to fall in love with that strive, the process, the part of it, the work, rather than the result and the avoidance of discomfort. And actually sometimes talking about uh, purpose as if it's a giant world saving goal can be just as bad as focusing on the outcomes of work right because it, you become disconnected with it yeah well actually I'll get your opinion on this because something we found is that the Simon Sinek view of meaning and purpose I think has had yeah it's been great but it's also had a lot of dysfunction to it too where everyone thinks they have to have a bumper sticker I have to have my one big why and that drives me and that's what my life should be about. And if it doesn't relate, then it's not important. What we found in our research is that rarely are people connected to that big piece, that what drives them on a day-to-day basis and when they're in the struggle, in the strive, what, what enables them to handle that is a connection to a much more closer, tangible meaning and purpose. Like... I have to have a hard conversation with my a staff member and I'm terrified of it because I hate hard conversations. But the reason I'll take that on is because I care about my team and I want them to be happy. So I'm going to go into battle with this person because there is a greater good. So rather than 
you know, I'll, I'll have this hard conversation because it relates to my why. What was much more tangible was a, a shorter term meaning and purpose, a smaller meaning and purpose. Like, what's your view of that? What do you, what do well, you think? Well, it's actually interesting. One of the people I interviewed for my uh, most recent book uh, was the former CIO of ING Bank. And they'd oh, gone okay. through a big digital transformation because they'd, they'd looked at companies like Spotify and uh, Google and they said, how can we, even though we're not the same kind of organization, take on their... I guess their core DNA. And so they broke themselves into tribes and squads and they want to be more agile. And I guess I'd always thought that the reason they did that was for greater uh, agility and speed and, and uh, disruption. But I was shocked because he told me the reason they did that was actually about um, motivation. They said that if you're a bright young 25 year old, you've just joined the bank, you sort of get put on a virtual assembly line of doing a tiny little task for some giant project that delivers probably long after you've gone. You don't have a real connection to your work. Yeah. So it's purpose with a little p. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you've actually got to find a way to give people visibility into yeah. what they do and that what they do has real meaning. Yeah. And, and that's ultimately what drives that desire to learn in the moment. Yeah. And I won't mention them because... Uh, probably not appropriate, but uh, I was working with a, a large professional services firm and I was working with the very sort of senior partners of that. And I talked about were they connected to the values and they just went, oh, no one, no one looks at that stuff. And when we started to really analyze meaning and purpose, it was much more about the meaning was how do I create a cohesive team? How do I develop the people below me? How do I mentor? How do I give back? And, and it was much, or how do we just achieve this goal that we want to tick off? Um, it was much more, it was much smaller, the p, uh, purpose with a small P, and it was much more tangible than these kind of really big, grandiose statements of, you know, we want to change the world or we want to do this, yeah. How do you start thinking about the impact of data on all this? I mean, a lot of organizations do surveys uh, to try and take the pulse of their culture how people are feeling, yeah. uh, you know, whether they're happy. And, and one thing that concerns me is that we may be measuring something that's actually quite bad for us. Uh, if we're trying to, you know, just take a litmus test of happiness, um, then maybe people will at the time feel unhappy, but in the end, they'll feel that like that struggle has actually been more fulfilling. Yeah. Actually, can I answer that with a question? What is your view on corporate training or even... Yeah, you know, like we do presentations of different forms, keynote. Like I kind of look at the average training program or keynote. It's a popularity contest. Like, did you enjoy it? Yeah. And and I think because of that, tie that with the happiness movement, trainings become very safe and very, we, we don't want to challenge you too much. We want to give you some interesting stories to share with your mates. But... Like we, we did a training program recently. We called it the Seinfeld Leadership Program where we didn't teach any leadership content. Because when I sat down with the senior leaders, they'd done every leadership program on the face of the earth, but they weren't doing the behaviors. So we called it the Strive Project, which was we came up with 10 courageous leadership behaviors and we measured their teams. We interviewed their teams as to whether the, the leaders were doing these behaviors. And then we just put them through a program that was all about how do they overcome discomfort? Why don't they do those behaviors? And 
we had huge dropout because we actually held them accountable. <laughs> so my question to you is, like, train. I should walk out of training going, whoa, that just that really pushed my buttons, or that really challenged me, or that they really held me to account for doing that, rather than, oh, that was so much fun. Uh, I, th- I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I, I often feel if I, if people are not slightly uncomfortable after I've finished talking, I've actually not done my job. Yeah. It's like if you watch a Shakespearean tragedy and people clap right at the end of, of King Lear or Hamlet, you know, you don't get the cathartic moment of the play. Yeah, yeah. There needs to be that shocked silence, like what on earth just happened, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's the moment you grow. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, the real takeaway of your research in your book is how comfortable can we get with being uncomfortable? Yeah. You know, how do you, in a sense, weaponize discomfort so that you can give people just enough that they can keep extending themselves without being to the point that they burn out? Yeah, and I was going to say something. Obviously, burnout is a, a chronic condition, but what's that model where we kind of go comfort zone, stretch zone, stress zone? Right. Like, part of me goes, why don't we just whack people in stress zone more often? Why don't we? Like, why don't we kind of push them in the deep end a little bit? Because the theory behind that model is that people can be in the stress in the in the stretch zone, but being in the stress zone is like being in the red line of the RPMs, right? Yeah, but I mean, obviously, chronically, you don't want someone in that stress zone. But one of the things I do in my keynotes is ask people what are they most proud of in their whole life? Like they've got to come up with it in the keynote. And it's always the hardest thing they've ever done. And what they say is, I'm proud of the growth that came out of that. So why don't we kind of... What is the stress zone for people? Is, is it feeling like you don't have the capabilities to perform a task? Or is it a goal that is not achievable and with terrible consequences if you don't achieve it? Yeah, I suppose the complexity of that's really high. I, I just think our attitude of, well, if I've got to grow, I'll just stretch myself a little bit. Like what we showed in the book is most of that is nonsense. Some, we also interviewed organizations and went, what are, you, what's, what are you most proud of of the organization? And it was always in a crisis or something went wrong and, and, and they just banded together to overcome it. And they said, we were so far out of our comfort zone, but we stepped up and that we took the learning of that and the confidence of that and we're able to stretch ourselves even more. So some leaders are better at this. I always think of them as wartime CEOs. You know, like when the company's on war footing because yeah. there's a bold new competitor, there's a takeover imminent, uh, the company's on the verge of bankruptcy. There's some leaders that step up and kind of have that Churchill moment, yeah. you know, of saying, you know, this, this <laughs> we will fight them on the beaches. And, and, and you know, the, actually in these moments of crisis, you know, companies can reemerge um, totally transformed or, yeah. or they can flame out. Yeah. But does this ultimately mean that we always need to be on war footing now? That That part of living through a time of transformation is that we, in a sense, have to nurture this constant sense of discomfort and, and change. Definitely, we don't want a constant sense of discomfort. And, and part of, like what I talk about in the book is that when we're in that struggle, like when we're really under it, there's foreground behaviors we have to do. So stuff we do in the moment, but there's also background behaviors that enable people to strive. And one of the key background behaviors, and these are your kind of rituals, is recovery is one of those. 
So if you practice regular recovery to prevent burnout, to, to look after your sort of well-being, your mental health, that enabled you to strive much more. Um, so we definitely don't want to, to churn and burn and, and burn people out, but why not take on something that's you think is far out of your comfort zone? So if you're preparing your kids uh, for, for, <laughs> oh, the work, no. for the workplace of the future, down, yeah. really, I mean, what are, what are the kinds of psychological toolkits that you think we need to give the next generation uh, to thrive in an environment where there aren't jobs for life, where your job title is going to change all the time, and you will have to potentially be in a process of constant transformation? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I've kind of been doing this with my children. I've been, you know, using them as an experiment. Um, and not only at school, but also they do sort of, well, not elite athlete, but they're competitive athletes. Um, and two of the big ones I've been working on is the acceptance of when you're in struggle, you're going to feel bad and that that's okay. And that getting them to normalize and this was interesting when we we spoke to a lot of sports psychologists too and and there's a number of studies that show elite athletes when they're performing most people think anxiety and fear are bad they're going to detract from performance but it was only in athletes who thought anxiety and fear detracted from performance so if they went oh my gosh i shouldn't be feeling this way and tried to fight it performance went down whereas athletes who went well, I'm in the Olympics, of course I'm fearful and anxious. Of course I'm predicting disaster. Of course I'm freaking out. Of course I'm worrying about the result. It that had no, no impact on their performance at all. They just saw it as part of the process. So very much working with my children to get comfortable in discomfort of the negative emotion, negative uh, thoughts, negative stories are just part of the process. I suppose the second one is comes back to the failure piece of Every day I ask my daughters, what'd you screw up today? Like, what'd you fail at? What went wrong? I talk about my failures. And the reason I did that is my eldest daughter is an anxious child who's perfectionistic and she would have meltdowns when she would make a mistake, like colossal. And every day I asked her, what did you fail at today? And for the first two months, she wouldn't answer it. would just avoid it. The younger one would, but she wouldn't. And then um, I just kept asking. And I kept talking about that when, when we try something, we fail and, and I gave examples. But anyway, uh, she came home recently from school and I said to her, um, so we have a long hallway in our house. She comes in the front door. I'm walking up the hallway as she comes in. I said, Bells, how was school? She goes, awesome, failed at four things and gave me a high five as she walked past. So I think uh, her relationship with failure is starting to change dramatically. Ultimately, this is really important because how we deal with failure really goes to the heart of how we think about the work of the future. Yeah. And probably the biggest risk is that as we start automating the obvious tasks, we miss the opportunity to reinvent work and people's attitude to it. I mean, I think if anything, automation will first take away the activities that people feel super comfortable doing. Yes. Totally within their competence and confidence levels. And people probably think they feel happy doing these tasks at the moment because they're easy to do. Uh, and they'll be the first things to be automated, but actually in the long term then, by taking these away from people and throwing them in the deep end, forcing them to rapidly evolve, 
they're going to be stressed and unhappy, but potentially they're going to be happy. Yeah, I think what this book does and what this research uh, uncovers, and obviously we're going to do more research moving forward, is it's, it's, a, a, it's hopeful. It's hopeful of most people predict the automation will be devastating, but what it will do is force people to be in a position of evolution. And that is critical for every human being. And I, and I think if we can take that mindset and see the struggle as development rather than the struggle as the threat, then it will benefit everyone, but also allow us to evolve far faster. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.